You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave here on Triple R 102.7 FM. Or welcome to the podcast or the radio on demand, a playback service if you're catching up with us that way. We're going to do some film criticism. My name is Thomas Cordell. I'm joined by Alexandra Helen Nicholas, Josh Nelson and Cerise Howard. Good evening all. Good evening all. Hello. Good evening. Let's turn to tonight's films. We're going to be looking at the UK documentary Chemsex, which has recently screened at the Melbourne Queer Film Festival and is going to have a number of event screenings later this week. I think, I think there's a total of four screenings. This film looks at the London-based subculture of gay men who combine the use of uh, mostly amphetamines with high-risk high sex. We'll also be discussing the 2002 film Russian Ark, which has recently been been remastered and re-released. It's one of the first films to have been shot in a continuous take. It's a sort of tour of 300 years of Russian history, art and culture. But first, we're going to begin with the, the historical German drama Labyrinth of Lies. Now, modern Germany is a country very much aware of its dark past. Learning about the Nazis, the Holocaust and the concentration camps is part of the national school curriculum today in Germany. However, it wasn't always like that. And this film is about the events in 1958 when a young prosecuting attorney began to examine the atrocities that occurred in the Auschwitz camp with the aim of bringing former camp commanders to trial. I actually thought this film made an interesting companion piece to Spotlight, as both films are about a time and place where a culture of denial and cover-up attempts to prevent the pursuit of justice. Given that, how do you all think Labyrinth of Lies compares? I don't know that it compares all that favourably, frankly. I didn't like this film very much. I thought it was a really pat uh, look at something that's very uh, um, a very important historical episode, at Germany coming to terms with its uh, wartime atrocities, in particular in this film, those committed at Auschwitz. Um, I, I really struggled with this because I wanted it to be a good film because I think any film that deals with the Holocaust almost is obliged to be a good film and it's very problematic for me when I find these films less than satisfying. And why I found this less than satisfying was that I... Um, the whole... There's a term actually comes up in the dialogue at some point. Someone doesn't want something sugar-coated for them and I feel this film presents a fairy tale Frankfurt in 1958 which is all candy-coloured pastel wonderland of happy Germans. It's all lollipops and puppies and rainbows and unicorns. And yes, that is kind of the point but it, it lays it on thick. This film, to me, is really mechanical and uh, I, I knew every manoeuvre that this film was going to take before it took it. There's a, a romance that uh, is going to be potentially compromised because of a family member of the romancee, no doubt having a dark past. Uh, the, the protagonist will doubtless find some uh, chilling skeletons in his own closet. Uh, there'll be resistance from all quarters in a, a bureaucracy and a government that doesn't necessarily want to unearth um, or, or open an old, not terribly old, wound uh, for all of Germany to um, feel guilt over. And, uh, I mean, what, what interested me most was that this young protagonist was especially interested in chasing one particular Nazi, Josef Mengele, uh, famous as the Angel of Death for his um, horrific experiments, especially upon twins, but on others as well at Auschwitz, when what uh, the Attorney-General really wants is for all of uh, the everyday 
German folk who are complicit in the Auschwitz crimes, whether uh, in the camp or without it, uh, to, to be brought to justice. But it, to me, it's just all too, too pat. It's too gl- it's not, glib's perhaps not quite the right word because there's nothing frivolous about this film, but I found it all utterly mundane and mechanical. I don't know if you're going to share that, that view, but I, I, I just wasn't terribly taken by this film. At all. I, I really agree with you. I think before I'd seen this, I'd heard it described as a TV movie, um, which I think is a perfect description. The director, um, Giulio Riccarelli, I believe his name is, this is his first feature. So he's an Italian-born but done a ton of work um, as an actor and director. Um, but it's his first feature film. And I think you get that this is not, this is not a film in the hands of a master of cinema. That being said, what, what I found really fascinating about this film, there's a, there was two films actually that I was thinking of when I was watching this, uh, not as a point of direct comparison, but I think because it intersects in, in kind of interesting ways. One is Son of Saul, um, which we talked to Josh and Cerise when you guys were away. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it's Still a happened. film. It's just, I mean, it's on my film of the year mm. list already. I'm, I made it's just, that call as well. I, I'm not sure yeah. if anything is going to really match yeah. that for me this year. It's... um. An essential film, but that's a film that very much. I'm sure that you know the story. That it's uh, it's a sort of commando in in a camp, and the the film. There's so many ways that that film, that story could be told so badly and so falsely, um, and that film, without giving too much away, relies very much on a formal strategy. It's it's shot very close to the protagonist's head, and almost virtually everything in the background is out of focus. So it's a very short depth of field. So it's a very intimate, intense film. Uh, so we hear things, but we don't really see things. We see flashes of things. And the film form really fitted the story that was being. It was one of those moments where form and, and narrative really comes together. What my feeling with this film was, and I don't think it's successful for precisely the reasons that you've said, when I was watching it, I, I was really interested how such a banal mode of filmmaking was talking about the banality of evil. I thought that there was a really nice... And I, I, I agree with you in that. I think that that was probably more accident than intent. I think in the hands of a much more experienced filmmaker, they could have done some really interesting things with that kind of melodramatic mode. I mean, and the other film that I thought a lot, and I guess it's an obvious one, and I'm certainly not the first person to point it out, is Judgment on Nuremberg, which I went back and watched last night because nothing makes a week complete <laughs> um, <laughs> than a three-hour film about the Nuremberg trials. And this film, Labyrinth of Lies, which I can't even say with a straight... I mean, it's a terrible translation into English. In German, it's uh, in Labyrinth des Schweigens, which sounds better labyrinth of lies to me sounds like the sequel to caravan of courage i can't i can't, can't. labyrinth of lies it's terrible i was just going to jump in quickly and i ha- like i haven't seen this film or son of soul yet and i really want to but when you use the phrase banality of evil particularly in the context of of germany and well austrian filmmakers as well michael hannock is a filmmaker who stands out as someone to me for me is really synonymous with that mode of filmmaking is there is there that sort of no, it's it? very much a TV this is movie. the polar like opposite to yep. something Hannah yeah. no, I would say that there's no artfulness to it. I'd actually no. go that far. I mean, just, it is a TV melodrama. It's a banal film. When I think yeah. of German melodrama, I think of, um, you know, Douglas Sirk, uh, Fassbinder. Fassbinder. Like, mm. these are the, you know, I'd love to see Fassbinder do this. Well, oh my gosh, I've just had a, a little moment there <laughs> just at the mere thought. I need to fan myself to calm down. Melodrama could be a complex, amazing things, as those two directors in particular have shown. This is not complex melodrama. This is soap opera. And I think this idea of a collective culpability or, 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 or confronting the past of a nation is such an important idea, which is why I was fascinated by this film. But, but everything great about this film could be told to me in five minutes and I'd kind of get the idea. Um, 
funny enough, I actually saw this shortly after the new Michael Moore documentary, Where to Invade Next. Um, I don't think we're going to be covering it full in full on this show, but the, the general idea is he tra- Michael Moore travels to European countries and sort of cherry-picks good aspects of them that America should be emulating. And one of his examples from Germany is how well they educate their children and their citizens about what Germany did and the dangers of, of fascism and how it's a remarkable thing that they have done, that they've confronted their ugly past instead of denying it or pretending it doesn't happen, which for goodness sakes, this conversation still happens in this country. There's still insane angry denial if you dare to suggest that there were people here first who got treated extremely badly by the people who are our ancestors. So you know that's a really fascinating part of Germany but this film just treats it with such kind of boring such a boring pedestrian kind of procedural approach and and I've been thinking of a lot of other German films that have come out in the last few years who I think are starting to examine this issue in a really fascinating way. I remember quite... When was it? We, we talked about the German film Oh Boy, which was kind of flippantly at the time regarded... referred to by some as Francis Hart in Berlin with a male protagonist, but... That's it, an awful tagline. Both the films came out at the same time, and they were both kind of being positioned as sort of, sort of hipster, breezy comedies in these major cities. But uh, Oh Boy really sort of starts to... It has got a, it's a breezy, fun film. I, I adored it. But it does sort of end with... This his confrontation with with the past and the filmmaker at the time was talking about how this whole new generation of Germans, there's a new generation of Germans that doesn't have the collective guilt but they have the curiosity and they want to interrogate what happened and it's allowing for this really refreshing cinema to emerge but we also, we saw it with people like, you know, even Wim Wenders kind of explores this as a, a sort of side issue in some of his films, there's some really amazing stuff in Wings of Desire, another Berlin film for example which looks at the shadow that Nazism casts over modern Germany. So the the idea about this film looking at a time when they didn't accept the past and they were denying it and, and you know this person who started this this these trials are finally exposed it is such rich material treated with not content but just treated in such a boring pedestrian way and syrupy oh those strings so many just uh, wailing strings it just lays it on so thick it's utterly pedestrian and uh, it's completely frustrating i cast my mind back to uh, phoenix last year another film which grappled, that's another one that does it yeah, yeah which, really well in an extremely sophisticated fashion with uh, Germany's wartime uh, ghastliness and um, and, and that, that investigates it through a, a prism of, of genre conventions and certain other film buffiness and is a, a wonderful film. That I, I don't even know how this film Labyrinth of Lies came about. Who, who bankrolls something that, like that? I mean, I think... Was is, it, is, is it actually a telly movie? It's, mm. I think that, I honestly, I think that this is failed Oscar bait. I, I really think that that's the story behind mm. this film. I mean, I know that it, it, it was the German film that was up for an Oscar and it didn't get into the final um, it round. Was, it was their you? submission. The, the it German was the German submission film. and it yeah. beat... Um, it, it got it over Victoria because there was some debate because uh, Victoria had too much English language in yeah, it to right. be considered a foreign what? film. So, um, so mm. this film was the German entry for um, best foreign film. Is that foreign what it is? Language best, best foreign, foreign language, language film. film yeah. um, and I very much see that, that there is this attempt and I to kind of... Judgment at Nuremberg is, if you read reviews in this film, that's the film that keeps coming up. And the idea of telling this story from a German perspective I think is a really interesting one. Watching, watching this film and, and Judgment at Nuremberg back-to-back is, is a really, really interesting experience. 
Um, I better say, judgment at Nuremberg blows this out of the water. Oh, judgment, of, judgment at Nuremberg blows everything <laughs> yeah. out of the water. I mean, it does. This film doesn't have Max Miriam Shell for, for starters. Yeah. I mean, just put him in every film. I mean, he's he passed uh, away. Montgomery, Monty, recently yeah. cleared. We covered we covered it on the podcast. We or did in the live days no, a few years ago, possibly one or two years ago. Incredible. We, we did the whole string of Stanley Stanley Kramer, Kramer. films at one point. Yeah. We did that live to air. I'm yeah. sure. Mm. I think that this film is very much in dialogue with Judgment Nuremberg in a very conscious way. It's very much that this is the admin work before the trial, and I mm. think, like I said, I think in the hands of a better filmmaker, there could be something really interesting done with the banality of that and with the that kind of using tropes as a kind of um using these kind of genre tropes as a as a way like phoenix did phoenix is a really great point of comparison cerise um but this is this is a first time filmmaker and it really feels like that it feels like a tv movie three triple r Chemsex is the latest documentary by Vice Films. It looks at the party and play subculture in London of gay men who combine amphetamines with sex, often without protection from sexually transmitted diseases. Containing extensive interviews with men currently or recently having been in the scene, as well as sexual health workers, the film raises concerns about the activities it depicts and attempts to understand why some men are attracted uh, to what on the outside seems like an extremely risky practice. How successful do we all think chemsex in, or does this work as a film? Is this the kind of film we like to see? What do we make of chemsex? I'll I'll start on this. I... um I feel that I have no right to kind of speak up in a strong way about the content as such in this film just because it's so far from my personal experience. I think that for me to make a kind of moral call on what's going on in this film is is frankly absurd. What I can make a call on is, is documentary filmmaking, is how does this work as a documentary? And watching this... Um, all I could think of was those Channel 4, Britain's Gone Mad, kind of you know, gypsies on welfare with knives in our schools kind of uh, scared kind of TV things that, that you see all the time on, on, on British television. That's how it felt to me. And at the time when I was watching it, I thought kind of icky, like because of that, not because of the content of the film um, as such, but the way that it was being presented. Um just felt kind of very very simplistic very moralistic i i have to confess a bias because of vice Uh, my only exposure to vice films is is a weird one actually it's in ty west's horror film his found footage horror film the sacrament which is about a vice film crew um going to south america and it's basically a kind of jonestown reenactment even though they don't call it that and it is this real kind of deeply conservative moralistic film and and i think it really just the label it really put me off the label vice so maybe i kind of have come to this with that kind of i don't know that kind of preconceived notion about vice um but then i mean but did vice have anything to do with that film oh it was vice branded all oh, right it was very much a a branding well we thing. discussed all this mayhem the australian skateboarding film a couple of years ago that's a vice film which i wasn't aware of at the time Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, well, that ruins what I was just about to say. Because I quite like that. Yeah, I thought that was that, that was a film with some dignity. I thought it was an Australian production, though. Does Vice have an Australian offshoot? Yes. Right, okay. Yes, this, is, this is an American company. They do. They run an American yeah. documentary television program. They've got their tentacles everywhere. Right, though, They're okay. quite the multimedia global company now. Because yep. I didn't... Well, not recognising all, all this mayhem as part of the Vice brand, my introduction to Vice was actually through parody, and that is the wonderful TV... Nathan- sh- 
Well, no. I just spoiled well, it for you. No, I wasn't even going to say you that. I wasn't going to say Nathan, Nathan, Nathan Barley. No, it was actually... Um, Nathan Barley is very vice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah. Documentary Now, that wonderful six-part series. Each, each episode is a takeoff of a famous type or style of documentary. And the first one is Sandy Passage, which is the amazing parody of <laughs> Grey Gardens, which I'm going to try and mention as many times <laughs> as I can. Um, they have an episode which is in a vice style where a group of kind of cowboy documentarians go to seek out Mexican cartels. And the joke of it is they keep getting killed off so Vice keeps sending new ones in and it, it keeps escalating with the, the cameos and so on. And watching this, I was instantly reminded of the parody because I think the, the distinction between the parody and the actual style is is increasingly thin, particularly in the early stages of the documentary and the way it seems to establish the key threads and the focus of the documentary. You can almost hear the voiceover sort of in an ominous tone going, gay, drugs, sex... AIDS. It's almost like a horror film. And look, at a certain point I got over that, and I think it was due to a couple of key subjects within the film who bring a bit of dignity. And, and the, the the subject who I, I felt was a really effective inclusion in the film was David, the healthcare worker. David Stewart. Yeah. from Melbourne. I think that was, a really, that was an incredibly important inclu- inclusion because it anchored the film in something quite real. It anchored the film in, in something quite pressing in terms of medical debates, in terms of the subculture. Whereas I thought much of the documentary and the way it tried to weave together the threads of technology, drug use, sex and homosexual subculture felt kind of arch in some ways like there were, it was kind of creating these threads between these different discourses and categories that that seemed to be suggesting they were innate as opposed to something that they were just sort of reducing to to serve the purposes of the of the documentary's argument yeah it's um it's a problematic film this one uh the filmmakers are not remotely of the community uh, they're depicting here which you can't necessarily expect of a documentary film crew to... I mean, uh, part of the reason for making documentaries is to go forth and uh, document otherness, I suppose, or hopefully not too anthropologically or ethnographically insensitively. Um, but I, I have to query why this film was even made. What is the motivation of the filmmakers? Who is it for? Who is it for? That's what I could not what figure out watching ag- this. What is their agenda? Especially if there really is quite a fear-mongering... Um, attitude that just permeates every frame in this film. There is horror music stylistics on the soundtrack and visually uh, and and people giving testimony behind curtains in a spooky uh, fashion, presumably to protect their anonymity, but um, at the same time it's done in a fashion that's a little bit shower scene-ish even. There's a lot about this that leaves me, the the queer in the room, with a bit of a sour taste and um, because I... I, I certainly recognise risks in some of the behaviour being uh, testified to in this film by various of the subjects profiled. And um, there are some sad stories given uh, a voice in this as well. And some people who've come a cropper uh, very young in their life. Um, and they'll still live and they'll still probably live meaningful lives. But uh, many have picked up uh, uh, HIV or other sort of lifestyle issues that are um, uh, partly attributable to um, how they've conducted themselves under the influence of various drugs. Quite a cocktail, in fact, it's not just amphetamines. There's um, various uh, 
um, drugs there with some I'm not even terribly familiar with even by their acronyms. It's so an alphabet of drugs, isn't there it? There is I an alphabet, yeah. Yeah, I needed, yeah, needed a glossary at, at times during this documentary. Yeah, uh, and at no point does anyone actually explain really quite why. It's, it's almost as if it's assumed knowledge what ketamine does, what GHB does, what um, me- mephedrone? mephedrone? Yeah. Not methadone, but mephedrone, I think. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah I, this film, I have a real sense of disquiet about it. I don't think it was made for what we might call the right reasons uh, or to or to preach to the audience who perhaps most would benefit from uh, a, a better handled, uh, more sensitively handled um, informational, educational, uh, health care sort of documentary slash educational film. Um, there's something that's just a bit weirdly... Yeah, arch is a good word you used, I think, Josh. Uh, yes, there's something almost camp, which you'd think might be appropriate for a queer subcultural documentary, but no, it's actually not. There's something just a bit menacing, needlessly menacing about this film. It's a, it's a frustrating film. My, my biggest frustration was I couldn't get a sense of the extent in which this was an issue. Like, how big is this subculture? It felt a bit like that they looked at how cruising back in its day was kind of taken as an attack on the entire... Uh, gay community, even though it was about a very specific subculture, and they've said, well, let's make this deliberately ambiguous. And look, I I don't mind talking about the content in this film or the background of the filmmakers because I, I do that regardless of the doco. Like, I, I really don't see that as, as an issue. But it's all about how I, th- with my knowledge and background and experience talking about film, how I think this film delivered a message and what it was doing with the material. And yet... <laughs> I suspect they did go in with the right intentions and something went horribly wrong because within this film there's some really interesting material and there's some really heartbreaking material. And it starts to get really good at some point in the middle where they talk about the nature of addiction, both the the, the chemical and drug time, but also addiction to sex and where that kind of intimacy and you know orgasm addiction comes from and looking at the ties to extreme loneliness and possibly how certain same-sex attracted men feel this because of some sort of ostracization that they they have suffered that stuff i wanted to see explored more um i was i was quite confronted by the very nihilistic attitude a lot of the subjects in this film had to aids like i that was news to me but again i don't know whether that they just pick some really good subjects or whether that's a really prevalent thing and having said all that greg araki explored that with far more boldness and confronting energy in in the 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 90s ultimately what annoyed what annoyed me about this film is you had this good content in there but the film felt like it was trying too hard to shock me all the time this is a controversial capital c film and i think vice is guilty of that a lot they like to be controversial and in your face and i'm going to sound very kind of prudish and old manny manny here but all, all the footage of people shooting up and having sex i just felt like saying i get it i get it this is explicit this is really confronting but you're taking me away from this important subject matter i want to get back to the heart of this film stop trying to shock me because you're not succeeding you're you're just starting to annoy me that those scenes had the same kind of weird uncomfortable kind of conservative voyeurism that reminded me of the the start of irreversible the the kind of problematic quote unquote gay club scene in at the start or the end of irreversible however you want to i don't know whether it's a kind of cool to bring that film into the mix here. No, I think it's a good example but because th- that's doing a similar thing as well. a moral panic tone yeah. to it that just didn't sit nicely with me. Josh, Dr David Stewart, I think he's definitely worth... He, I think the, the, the things that I got out of this that made me think came from him, him talking about the long-term fallout 
um, of identities kind of post-AIDS, you know, that, that, that this kind of spiralling and this, this, this sense of isolation. There was interesting stuff there, but it just felt... I mean, it came in so late and it, it kind of felt like one of many, many things buried under this kind of, yeah, kind of irreversible-esque moral panic. Do you, um, did you ever see that episode of Brass Eye? One with all, all <laughs> the of great them panic, repeatedly. the panic around cake, the, the, the made-up yeah. drug. Yes, the made-up, made-up drug. <laughs> yeah, this uh, film. Gosh, that's uh, perfect. Yeah, it, oh, that, it's it, all Chris Morris between yeah. between um, Nathan Barley and. And this is what I mean. The line hmm. between parody and execution, or supposedly serious documentary, is becoming increasingly small, if not blurred beyond belief. That's chemsex. Um, we'll, I'll mention it towards the end of the show, but there, were, there is a handful of event screenings happening later this week. I, I guess. I, look, I, I just will qualify this by saying I have read online a lot of people who are very affected by this film, who did like it and find a lot more in it than, than we have. So I would give it a shout out if I can to Glenn Dunks did an interview on Same Same with the filmmaker. That's a really remarkable read. I was about to actually yep. mention, Glenn, that was a really good uh, article that's worth tracking down. We'll try to post that on the social media. Three. Triple. Ah. Is April Amnesty. You know, more than half of this station's revenue does come from listener subscriptions. So eight... April Amnesty, which is happening right now, coincidentally, because it's April. Um, this is the only subscriber campaign that we run, as in Triple R run, outside of Radiothon. So, you know, if you've been thinking about subscribing and you haven't done it yet, now is a really, really good time. Check if your subscription has lapsed. It's really easy to have happen. This is a good time to resubscribe and go in the running for all the prizes. Or, you know, nudge that freeloading friend along. Even if Plato's Cave, as a podcast, is your only connection to this station, please do subscribe. It makes one hell of a difference. Triple R is a not-for-profit, independent community broadcasting service. We are dependent on your subscriptions. Go along to rrr.org.au and follow the, follow the links to become a subscriber. Three, triple, ah. You're listening to Plato's Cave. The 2002 film Russian Ark by filmmaker Alexander Sokorov was one of the first films to take advantage of digital filmmaking technologies to shoot the film in a continuous 96-minute take. Set in the Winter Palace of the Russian State Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, I think, but I believe it's one of five palaces that make up that museum. Six. Six, there mm. we are. Oh, lovely. Um, they just built a new one. Wow, that happened quick. <laughs> <laughs> Progress marches <laughs> on. Now, the audience takes the perspective of an unnamed narrator who is being taken on a sort of tour through the museum by a 19th century French nobleman who is often disdainful uh, towards Russian culture. Uh, during this strange tour, the narrator witnesses key events that occurred at the palace from the last 300 years, including the final ball given under Nicholas II's rule before the fall of Imperial Russia. Now, given our recent discussion on Victoria, Alex, when you and I were here with Hayley, uh, and, and the use of the long take, whether real or faked, how does Russian Ark hold up 14 years later? Is it just a gimmick, as some people said at the time, or has this film got a longevity that, that deserves this new remastering and re-release? Well, my review on Victoria a couple of weeks ago was just watch Russian Ark, <laughs> and, and that was from memory. That was that was sort of the vague knowledge that this re-release was coming. So coming back and watching Russian Ark, I'd forgotten how much I loved this film. Mm. My, my problem, I think, with Victoria was that it did feel really gimmicky, that there was no real, other than, ooh, being in Berlin's really immersive, like, I know you're from Melbourne, <laughs> We get it, we get it. 
there was something about it that just did it just felt really like a shallow gimmick and and in russian arc it's it's the opposite i mean it, the, the 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 medium is the message like it's just this immersive i love that the narrator is the director of the film um we're not told that within the film but i think there's something really knowing the film plays with there's a whole reflexivity going on this idea of performance of history being performed who is this stage for who is history for is the question that this film is asking and it's i love that as 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 these characters kind of with this steady can this constant flowing in and out of these different salons and in and out of different rooms and moments of russian history that are not in order they're not chronological that this idea of who is history for what is the act there's a real historiographical notion here this idea that we float in and out of time in strange ways through art through memory through things like costume i mean i i just i'd really forgotten what a great film this was and and just watching it was just such a joy the medium is the message is an interesting um uh phrase to throw into the the mix from the outset here because when this film was first made of course it was shot digitally it was impossible to get a 96 minute shot otherwise but then it was released on film as was still the custom of the times whereas now of course this is a brand new digital restoration that is existing in a uh, high def 2k's now it's the parlance we talk of such things it's not 4k's too um it's not a restoration per se because i don't think all the data was corrupted did i say restoration or it's a remastering a remastering yeah yeah, it sounds a bit like spin actually because i don't think they had to do a hell of a lot um unless there was some data corruption let's say in the 14 years between then and now um but this film is so so uh attuned to ideas of time and its passage um the sent uh that the hermitage museum i think was turning 150 in 2002 which is a very significant anniversary uh this, this film freely moves through time even though it's all in one shot the, the the time within the hermitage there is it shifts constantly and um I wouldn't say meaninglessly, but it's, it seems arbitrary. It just uh, changes from period to period, from costumes to indicative of various periods to other costumes. And there's this that, that curious, wafty French diplomat wandering around the place. Sometimes he and the director, we hear him only in voiceover, are seemingly ghosts. Sometimes they get to engage with these characters. Sometimes these characters are historical figures. Sometimes they're not. It's so rich that I think this film defies any one reading, especially in one viewing. I, I watched this in a, a, um, a fairly overtired state last night for the first time in, in Yonks and and just got lulled, actually, by the camera work as much as any sense of all of that history I was trying to make sense of. Uh, when this first came out, I knew very little of Europe firsthand. Since then, I've got to know a bit, but have never been to Russia, but I was still seeing significance in places that I could never have picked up on it 14 years ago. And I, I think this is such an immensely rewarding and rich film. Um, and it utterly transcends this idea of this being a gimmick, this 96-minute um, take. But I am always intrigued by how much more interested in time Eastern European filmmakers are. Uh, the Melbourne Cinematheque profiled the work of Miklos Jantsho last year, who was famous for his extremely long takes, and then his, so you could say, protege, Bellatar in more recent times. He's intricately choreographed very very long takes um which uh, soccer has just taken to it's sort of apotheosis in this film it's still the most extraordinarily choreographed thing i think i've ever seen in a cinema though i can't say on film yeah i, I hadn't realized but this was about the fourth or fifth time i'd seen this film i i got very obsessed with it when i first saw it and had to buy it on dvd straight away and have revisited it a number of times and and just just the pleasure of 
the, the, the form of filmmaking conveying this dreamlike state. And, Alex, we talked about the problem with Victoria is it's trying to create the illusion of reality, but by having no edits doesn't properly mimic how we experience the world because we, we blink, we, we edit our lives all the time, where this film creates a dreamlike state where sort of history and culture and, and, and art all kind of converge in one very strange, strange experience. And this idea that it's ever-flowing and all, you know, sort of interconnected. I mean, as well as the triumph of the, the, the single take in this film, which was their third attempt, so they had two miss starts and in the third attempt they could they had one last attempt because they were running out of battery they were running out of late they had to get it on this third time the museum would only let them film this one day like that's remarkable but as well as that is the first person perspective stuff in this film which is which is really stunning and i think including the strange european that you referred to often as the european he's loosely based on a, 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 a real person the marquis de custine who was a, a french nobleman who did visit russia and wrote very critically about it and there's really fun interplay between him and the narrator, with this guy constantly criticising Russian history and culture, saying, well, this is when they were just trying to copy the French, this is when they were just trying to copy the Italians. Um, there's a lot of humour in this film. I forgot how fun it was. I also forgot how incredibly moving it is, especially at the end when... And I didn't even know the history, but you just... A bit like the leopard, a bit like Visconti's leopard, there's a sense that something magnificent has come to an end and there is a real incredible sadness and sort of sense of mourning for for the end of this culture and and this film captures that i really enjoy the fact that this is a film where i don't know who all the people necessarily are i don't quite understand it the film lives beyond the experience of watching the film there's a great documentary on the dvd got in one breath which gives you a lot that's actually on youtube as well which i'll we can post to social yeah, media. Yeah, let's do that. It's worth the 45 minutes to, 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 to watch that because filling in the gaps of this film and continually thinking about it is so exciting. But, Josh, you've never seen this before, so I'm really curious to know what it's like for somebody to come to this film fresh, not having seen it back in 2002. Yeah, it's no Birdman, is it? <laughs> oh, <laughs> so I had to just lower the tone. Um, no, I have actually only just seen this this afternoon, so I'm actually still kind of processing it, and I'm in a quite a dreamlike state anyway due to significant fatigue, um, which is probably a, in some ways a perfect way to see this film yeah. because I found myself, and not in, this is not a criticism of the film, but I found myself moving in and out of this film in the same way that I do engage with films like Chris Marcus' Sans Soleil, even though they're very different formally and, and structurally. It has that, that poeticism and, and the use of the first-person perspective here really does feel like you're inside a dream and particularly the way the way it explores history in a non-chronological manner, a non-realist, the way it switches modes, the way suddenly you, it appears you're within the kind of the grips of a costume drama and then suddenly it's you're into comedy and then and then suddenly you know you're in, you're aware that you're inside the space of the of the hermitage with what seemed like the, the public have just suddenly walked in and, and in a contemporary context. The museum's curator is even in one scene as himself. Yeah, and I think in many ways, uh, just on a first viewing, it's a it's as as much an ode to the history of Russia and in history more generally as it is um, a kind of a, an ode to the role of institutions and museums and, and preserving history. And I was thinking a bit of National Gallery, the Frederick Weissman. That's exactly what, I, what I wrote too. down and that was one of my ebbs and flows. I moved down I was like, this is, in a similar way, this is achieving what Weissman did with that film in, in, a, in a different way but it still has that love of history. And I think that's why you feel that, that sadness at the end. Yeah. Uh, the other film that this 
reminded me of, which actually came after a Russian arc, was a segment from a, a film that played at MIFF two or three years ago called 3x3D. There was a sequence mm. by Greenaway, a sequence by Goddard, and a sequence by whoever... Hera, I think. Yeah, the rubbish sequence that came at the end. <laughs> but yeah, the Greenaway sequence was, was yeah. quite remarkable one. as well and, and followed a similar structure. It was a, f- a continuous single take that sort of moved... In, in a circular motion through the same space and the space changed around the camera. Yeah, clearly Greenaway was heavily influenced by Sokolov in, this, in that film. There's a, there was a scene in this film that really struck me that I don't remember having experienced before where um, a woman, and I don't, I don't know whether she was meant to be a historical figure or if she wasn't, but she's looking at a painting and she says, this painting and I have a secret. And it was like being struck by lightning. Like I love this, how this self-referential aspect just you, it falls in and out. We keep using this this phrase over and over again, but we this idea that this film and I have a secret, and it's not some kind of knowing intellectual connection. It's that we know that this is how you're watching the film. There's this beautiful 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 sense of we we understand the ebbs and flows because we're working with them and there's something so fundamental to the form to this single long take that really works with that it knows that we're drifting in and out it knows that we're thinking of other films it there's a knowingness but never it's never smug and it's a really joyful calm immersive beautiful experience the other thing i kept thinking of watching it was um i mean this is such a uh it's so conscious. I mean, the, the title Russian Ark, you know, it's, uh, I don't think it's a spoiler to say what happens at the end. I mean, we're told at the start by the narrator. DiCaprio drowns. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a non-narrative film about a history that happened 300 years so, ago. So, yeah, basically, the, the, arc, the Ark is a kind of symbolic vessel for Russian history. Yeah, I think that's yep. not, a, not a spoiler at all. What I kept thinking is, what would white Australian arc be? I mean, would that be like ugly Dave Gray and Bouncer from Neighbours? <laughs> Genie Little in For Luck? Yeah. Like, Albie come Nagel. on, like, let's, we've, you know, we've got a pretty long history here. Let's, <sighs> let's step up. Like, well, that, that's what this film does, is it shows us that you cannot separate art and culture from history, because that is who we are as a people. And it's a real tragedy that we, uh, I think countries like Australia and, and the US and the UK, and, and not universally, but there has been a bit of an anti-intellectual kind of attitude that's crept in. There's been an anti-arts attitude. I mean, the arts just get cut. Funding to, to, to you know, to, to film, to fine arts, to writing, to music is constantly getting destroyed. It's treated as, you know, some, the first, this is the first thing you get rid of, where this is this is what life is about. This is who we are. We need this stuff to reflect who we are. I'm getting really soapboxing now. <laughs> because I think this film just argues the case so beautifully that you cannot separate identity and history and, and culture. These are entwined. Tarkovsky, sculpting in time. Uh, Sokhorov often considered the heir to Tarkovsky's uh, particular Russian filmmaking genius. Sculpting in time, there's a lot to be said for that. This film is is, is very sculptural. The camera moves. It, it's very... It, um, there's a lot of undulating movements. I, I've got lulled in and out of dreamlike states constantly through this, but then other times the camera's right in people's backs and their faces. You're right in the thick of things. I think there's something incredibly... Uh, powerfully experiential about this film just even as as a spectator whether you're trying to engage with all the historical elements or not or other elements pertaining to uh, Australian cultural malaise Uh, but I I think we're going to be seeing more and more single shot films Um, the only one that comes 
remotely close to me to this in terms of achievement, ambition and um, brilliance is an Iranian film, Fish and Cat. Which we mentioned when we did. talked about it. I, yeah. I packed a bonk. I don't did, think yeah. we said that. I packed See, a bonk I, for Fish yeah, and Cat. I didn't love that. I adored I, that. Yeah. Me too. See, I haven't yeah. seen that. <laughs> yeah, and, and that one similarly plays with the impossibility of it all being one shot uh, in terms of a, a linear narrative because it, it recreates events within that narrative but from different perspectives but in the one shot. So it's constantly folding in on itself much like history does in Russian arc. In, well, in, in a fashion, they're, they're, they're not exactly taking the same approach to how they hand, treat, treat time, but it's um, somehow they're, they're kindred um, uh, films, and I'd love that as a double bill. That would just be I would also, if anybody's listening who can arrange yeah. that, Cerise and I are there. Basically, just, just quickly, the issue I had with Fish and Cat was similar to the issue I had with Victoria, is because it's still a narrative film, there's so much time running around setting up the next shot and padding out the action, where we're rushing... There isn't a next shot. What are you talking about? <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> setting up, yeah. I, I got that wrong. <laughs> setting up the, the, the next sequence. Like, it felt like I was watching a stage play where the camera had to move into position before the next sequence could begin. Um, that was my frustration with that, where, where I think Russian Ark is so much more of an achievement because it's not trying to, to, to be a narrative. And a lot of people have criticised it by saying it's easy to do a single-shot film if there's no narrative. And I think, well, actually bollocks to that because what, to that. what they achieve in this film is so much more prova- profound than a story. And profoundly anxiety-provoking as well. Speaking from someone who's working on a film set at the moment, the anxiety levels by the time you reach after the, well, anything after the halfway Jeez, mark yeah. and you're thinking, well, I wouldn't want to have been the extra who stuffs up this and they have to reset because there is, it's something remarkable about the technical achievement and I think you are aware of that while you're watching it but it doesn't detract from it, like you said, it's not a gimmick, it doesn't, it's not smug about it. It doesn't feel cheesy. The Absolutely. First, I think, the, I believe from memory, the first take they only got five minutes yeah. in. Like, I think that the, the adrenaline must have been so high. Like The rule they gave themselves was if something went wrong in the first 20 minutes, they'll start again. But after that, they had to keep going with it. And like I said, the take that we see captured on film was the final chance they had to get it right. And the sound was done in post because the director said he didn't want to be swearing every time someone <laughs> screwed up and they'd actually catch it on, on the recording. Yeah. Now, that is a director's commentary that yeah. I would like to... <laughs> yes. <laughs> and there was also a bit of colour grading and, and light filtering as well done in post. But yeah, it's still, still pretty much the real deal. Staggering it is. Staggering. Labyrinth of Lies is on limited release through Madman <laughs> Entertainment. <laughs> Chemsex is getting a small number of event screenings at Cinema Nova from this Thursday through to next Monday, courtesy yeah. of Bounty Films. Stop editorialising. <laughs> but the restoration of Russian Ark is currently screening at Cinema Nova, courtesy of Potential Films. Oh, my God, go and see this film. I'm going to editorialise now. <laughs> go, Russian Hey, next week on Plato's Cave, uh, we're going to look at the three Mothers Trilogy. This is the series of supernatural horror films by Italian film director Dario Argento that began in 19... Is it 76 or 77? 77. 77. Wikipedia was wrong. With s- began in 77 with Suspiria. I trust uh, Alex over Wikipedia. Well, Suspiria is also the subject of Alex's latest book, so she'll have one or two things to say about these films. If you're a horror fan or if you're just interested in these really fascinating films by a fascinating director, do tune in. You've been listening to myself, Thomas Cordwell, along with Alexandra Helen Nicholas, Josh Nelson and Cerise Howard. Good night. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.